Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 461, Cold Fire. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek, searching for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, and seeing if they withstand the test of time. This week, Cold Fire, the one where Kess discovers Morocampa lost in the Delta Quadrant while harnessing the power to boil tea with her mind. I will be back with trivia in a moment, right after Norm tells you how you can reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, this week's episode, Cold Fire. We have a story by Anthony Williams, and this is kind of a cool story. Anthony was working in the advertising promotions department at Paramount, but he submitted some story ideas from time to time. He has two in Voyager, this and one more coming up later in the season. His one other professional credit as a writer is on the screenplay for Young Chatterley 2, which featured Adam West and Sybil Danning, audience you can do your own research on this one but if you had showtime in the late 80s you already know all right we have a teleplay by brandon braga because of course i think we'll get into the very braga-esque aspects of this episode later and it was directed by cliff bowl and it's really nice to see cliff's name here he cut his teeth on TNG, and then we saw him move over to DS9, where he directed seven episodes there. He wrapped up on that show with Facets, which aired almost at the very end of the third season in June 1995. That brings his next Star Trek gig to this episode, his first of ten Voyagers, which aired in November of the same year. What is Suspiria, you might ask. Now, I haven't seen it written down anywhere, but knowing that Brannon has a soft spot in his heart for esoteric horror, I figured right away that the name of the alien was taken from Dario Argento's 1977 film of the same name. Now, the word itself is derived from Latin and means to breathe or to sigh. Regardless, the movie is an award-winning cult favorite. At this point, one of my favorites of the genre, honestly, known for its striking color palette and the soundtrack by the prog rock band Goblin. Go check it out if 1970s Italian horror is your bag, baby. Let's talk about our guest stars. The Ocampan male we spend the most time with, Tannis, is played by Gary Graham. Now, for those of you playing the home game, you already know that this is Gary's first Star Trek appearance, but it certainly won't be his last. We won't see him again until we get to Enterprise, but he does have a major recurring role there. He's also appeared in a few unofficial Trek projects. And in the meantime, if you want to see more of him, uh, you can find him on TV series like Mantis or Jag. Of course, many sci-fi fans know him as Detective Sykes when he starred in the TV series and TV movies of Alien Nation. And by the way, we are talking about an actor who early on auditioned for the roles of both Captain Sisko and Captain Janeway. 
John, if I may jump in here for one second, Please. I would be remiss not to uh, bring up uh, two words that uh, identify with a lot of science fiction fans that uh, are fans of Gary Graham. Robot jocks. Yes. <laughs> Bravo. A worthy addition. Now, Suspiria is played by Lindsay Ridgway. She is best known for a long run on the hit sitcom Boy Meets World, and she got her start very young, actually appearing in the ride film for Disney's Tower of Terror. I love that kind of thing. While Lindsay retired from acting in 2004, she did show up a few years ago as a guest star in the revival series Girl Meets World. This is her only Star Trek appearance. And uh, before we go, one very well-known Trek performer appears here as well. The voice for Suspiria is indeed not Lindsay Ridgway for a good portion of the story, but actually Majel Barrett Roddenberry. And we shouldn't have to explain that one. There's something in this story to get everyone's blood boiling. But hey, let's start with Tuvok's blood. Prologue. Cass is still learning telepathic techniques from Tuvok. She hones in on Neelix, but her giggles break the psychic bond, annoying Tuvok and reminding Cass that she's late for work in sickbay. When she arrives, the doctor's annoyance gives way to curiosity when they both discover that the remains of the caretaker, the alien entity that brought them to the Delta Quadrant, is rattling and emitting a high-pitched tone. Act 1. Captain Janeway and Bolana Torres arrive to investigate, and those rock-solid remains of Banjo-Man are certainly dead, but then the same thing happens again. Bolana detects that it's a sporocystian energy source from outside the ship that the remains are responding to. Could it be another being like the caretaker, his mate? And if they find this other being, could it send them home? Tuvok encourages some caution. He'll work on a sort of toxin to the sporocystian life form in case this one is not as vulnerable as the caretaker who they met. The crew then use the caretaker's remains as a kind of compass, directing Voyager to a location about ten light years away once they pick up the energy signal again. When they arrive, there's a space station, small but very similar to the caretaker's array, but no sign of sporocystian life. What they do detect is some 2,000 Akampa life forms, but before they can get closer, the station fires weapons directly at Voyager fortunately causing no damage. Then a communication channel opens. The person on the other end of the line is an Ocampan man who makes his warning very clear, you're not wanted here. Act 2. Being our resident Ocampa, Kess is brought in for a briefing. That station is 300 years old, and as far as she knows, there are no stories about Ocampa ever leaving their homeworld. They contact the station again, and the person on the other end of the line is a little more receptive to have a meeting once he sees Kess. Tanis, as he is called, comes to Voyager and says that their reputation in the Delta Quadrant doesn't exactly give him confidence. Voyager is seen as a threat, but Chainway gives him every reassurance that they are not. They're just looking for the caretaker's mate to see if she can help them get home. Unbeknownst to the captain, Tanis telepathically contacts Kess to say that he wants to talk to her alone. When they do, Kess again reassures him that the Voyager crew are trustworthy and saved her life. But Tanis digs more. He wants to see what Kess is all about, and they start by going to the aeroponics facility. Sure, there are plants and everything, and the ship is what Kess calls home, but Tana says she's missing out on a real life by being on Voyager, that life with other Akampa is so much more vibrant. He knows the caretaker's mate. Her name is Suspiria, and their species is called the Nassim. She's given his people some incredible powers, like over life itself. He, in fact, is 14 years old, unheard of for Akampa. And to illustrate his point further on what Kess is missing... Tanis wills the plants around them to bloom and grow at an incredible rate. Later, Janeway praises Kess's breakthrough with Tanis, but Kess expresses that she is of mixed emotions. 
She's glad to be the intermediary, but she doesn't know how to take Tannis. She wants to explore her own abilities, but is a little frightened of Tannis's powers. Aboard his station, Tannis telepathically contacts Suspiria about Kes, but the voice he hears isn't interested in another Okampa. She just wants Voyager. Act 3. Over dinner, Tannis shares what he knows about Suspiria, that she exists as Sporocystian energy, that she shows up when needed, that she'd be interested in meeting Kes. But maybe Kes would want to stay around, like permanently, on the station. Neelix's face registers discomfort, while Janeway says that she should give it some thought. Tannis will spend some time later with Kes, helping to strengthen her mental abilities. She's getting much better with Tannis's guidance, much to Neelix's chagrin. They reassure each other, though, that if she decides to stay with the other Okampa on the array, that she would want him there, and Neelix says he'd go anywhere with her. What neither of them know is that elsewhere on Voyager, Tuvok and the Doctor have been successful in coming up with a toxin that can certainly be used as a weapon against a sporocystian being, if the need should arise. Arriving at the coordinates where Tannis directs Voyager, there's no sign of Suspiria yet. Tannis sends out a subspace carrier wave and says that he'll know when she has arrived. With some waiting to do, Kess shows Tuvok that she has stepped up to certain telekinetic abilities way beyond her simple telepathy he taught her. Tuvok urges caution, but Kess demonstrates how she can excite the molecules in a cold cup of tea, bringing it to a boil. She can't stop, though, and the cup boils over and breaks. Kess calls out telepathically for Tuvok to help her, but when she sees him, his face is blistered and boiled and blood drips from his eyes and nose. As Kess screams in horror, Tuvok falls to the floor. Act 4. That was no delusion. In sickbay sometime later, the EMH brings Tuvok back to consciousness and reports that Kess accidentally boiled his blood. In typical Vulcan fashion, Tuvok gets off the examination bed and gets back to work, issuing the doctor's warnings. He even cuts off Kess before she can apologize. He wants her to see this as a learning experience, and he wants to continue to teach her so that incidents like this don't happen again. In the aeroponics bay, Kess has an unexpected visitor when Tannis shows up and says that he knows what happened even without being directly told. Her powers are strong and getting stronger. She's so strong, in fact, that she could someday grow to see Voyager's crew as mentally weak, almost like pets. She says no, they're her friends, but Tannis keeps pushing her to see and feel her own mental powers. In this very room, she can manipulate the plants around her. They glow bright colors, and everything around her takes on vivid hues. The fire in her mind becomes a literal swirl of energy around her until Kess temporarily passes out on the floor. When Tannis comes to her, she awakens to see that all the plants around her are dead. She's a bit worried about these powers, but Tannis again makes the case that she should come back to the station. After all, she's beyond all of this. The power to give life or take it away, the power to see the universe as it really is. She doesn't need Voyager. She has to come with him. She can live among her own people, develop her powers, live with Suspiria in a place of pure thought known as Exotia. It's pretty tempting, but Kess needs more time to think about it. Act 5. Suspiria has arrived. A subspace rupture opens in front of Voyager... And in engineering, the remains of the caretaker react as before. But something else happens in engineering. Some kind of plasma field worms its way in, and soon Balana disappears from the comms channel with the bridge. Captain Janeway goes to investigate just as Tuvok calls for a security team. Inside, Janeway finds a young girl holding the remains of the caretaker, and she asks why they killed him. Janeway tries to explain that they didn't, that he died, but before that, he brought them to this part of the galaxy, and they merely want to go home. Meanwhile, in the mess hall, Tannis is pressuring Kess again to come stay with him and the other Okampa on the station, but Kess senses the presence of Suspiria and knows that she is there to destroy Voyager. 
Oh, yes, that is definitely right. As about that same time, the little girl's demeanor changes and becomes much more threatening. She's already suspended Balana and Tuvok in midair, bleeding over Janeway. Then Suspiria turns her attention to the captain herself, simultaneously constricting and levitating her with her telekinetic powers. Elsewhere on the ship, the bridge officers are alarmed to see that the molecular structure of Voyager is tearing itself apart. In the mess hall, Tannis is forcefully demanding Cass return with him to the station and leave Voyager behind. When Neelix tries to intervene, Tannis dispatches him across the room with a telekinetic thrust. Kess, seeing Tannis more clearly now, uses her own telekinetic abilities to do to him what she did to Tuvok. The pain, not to mention the bleeding, is nearly unbearable, and he loses his grip on Kess. At the same time, Suspiria loses her psychic grip on the others in engineering, giving Janeway the opportunity to release that sporocystic toxin on the intruder. It works long enough to capture a still-defiant Suspiria in a force field, and she assumes that Janeway will kill her, just like she killed the caretaker. Uh, um, okay, one more time for the people in the back. Janeway reiterates that they did not kill the caretaker. They just want to go home. And to prove how honorable they are, Janeway drops the force field in a show of mercy. And Suspiria transforms back into her alien Nacine form and zips right out of there, taking Tannis with her, by dematerializing him out of the mess hall. Neelix will be okay. Suspiria has escaped into subspace. The ship will be fine, but that's one more alien that could have gotten Voyager home, gone again. After all the drama, Tuvok and Kess sit down for another session, but this time Kess admits that her more intense telekinetic abilities have left her since Tannis disappeared. She's glad, though and glad that the temptation to leave has left her too. She'd rather be done with those dark thoughts. Tuvok reminds her, though, that those unpleasant thoughts are still a part of her and need to be acknowledged. She has them. Even Tuvok has them, just like every other Vulcan. The trick is to be aware, because ignoring them can cause them to escape. The End Fantastic recap, John, and... This is what we're going to do. We're going to do something completely different before we jump into observations. We're going to jump into observations, I know, but we're going to jump in cold fire feet first into the fire. Oh, that's good. All right, here we go. Cold fire feet (laughs) first. I, I love the opening with the recap from Voyager's pilot episode because I feel like for all the episodes that have gotten us off track with the actual premise and mission of the show, it's nice to see some acknowledgement and then just direct tie back to that first story. It's also a good way that they could have used their escape clause, you know, in this case, just revealed to the audience that the caretaker was not going to be the way home. So I, I hats off to them for just Question. doing that, just making a direct tie. Question, though. So mm-hmm. they actually specifically said 10 months ago, which is probably mm-hmm. why... Samantha Wildman wasn't in this episode, just to make yeah. sure. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Samantha Wildman is somewhere on the ship going, really? 10 months? Really? Come on. That Come recap on. Can can't I be please right. Please just <laughs> have a baby now. <laughs> right? Um, I, I, did you have the same feeling that I did about uh, Tuvok's telepathic experiment with Kess? Like, is this an invasion of privacy? Can she hear a bunch of voices throughout the ship? Really? I, I mean, it's a good thing that Neelix wasn't thinking something awful or inappropriate. But this is just what they do. Like, by the way, crew of Voyager, make an announcement of the PA. By the way, Kess and Tuvok are going to be reading your minds for the next hour. <laughs> so I always thought Baxter, go to the gym. I always thought that mm-hmm. the, the Vulcan mind meld was intimate with one hand, but then it was yeah. almost um, extreme in its application with two hands, the way we saw Spock do that to Valeris in the Undiscovered Country. Yeah. So obviously yeah. there is a technique involved with Vulcan mind probe or Vulcan mind meld um, th- and manipulation. But it's almost as if he could use Kess's ability as an antenna for him to basically listen to everybody else. Oh, my God. That's so twisted. No, twisted right. was episodes yeah. ago. And we had a problem yeah. with that. No, this is completely. Different. Oh, right, yeah. right. That was the other one. 
<laughs> hey, since she's listening in on Neelix, that, that made me think of a conversation that I had with Holly, our very own mm-hmm. Holly Amos, part of the show, uh, several months ago, because this was a, a news item. And it, it was, does your internal monologue come across in complete sentences and thoughts, or is it just disjointed thoughts, emotions, etc.? Because Neelix is having a full-on conversation with himself, which is a little weird, I thought. But I, I'll pose that to you and to the audience. That is so yeah. strange. I never really thought of it that way as I'm trying to understand mm-hmm. my inner monologue right now. But here's what I do know. I like yeah. that Neelix is in a different, <laughs> pardon the pun, headspace right now <laughs> with just thinking about yes. different, more fun things like, you know, getting his nose hairs clipped or serving food to people. You know, could you imagine like, yeah. man, that pointy-eared Vulcan son of a bee, you know? I, I, Right. Yeah. 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 We, we don't want that. I do love that, uh, uh, you know, Tuvok responds so strongly to her giggles. And I just thought, you know, the old giggle inhibitor uh, from Planet Vulcan. Uh, that's a good band name, too, if anybody needs it. Uh, giggle inhibitor. You can have that. And oh, what's with that smile that Chakotay gives to Janeway? Yeah. When we talk about Bellana using the caretaker's remains like a compass, she turns back and there's Chicote, big old smile. That was the weirdest thing. So, timestamp seven minutes, 40, uh, 42 seconds in. I okay, had to timestamp that because I look at, like, why Robert Beltran would have made that choice. Mm-hmm. Because Janeway is saying something and she turns to him and he just smiles like. Like, you know, that old expression, like, you know, like the cat ate the canary. Like, what is he smiling about? And why so long and so it, it, lingering on that shot? Not only is he just smiling to a purely technical yeah. thing, like, oh, here's our directional thing. It's also literally the remains of the caretaker. It's like captain gives the order, get out the dead guy's bones, hook him up to the computer and use him like a compass. Like that's morbid and weird yeah. anyway. And Chakotay's has got that big old smile Very on his weird. face. Uh, there's an interesting jealousy in the doctor when he said, you'd think a Vulcan would be more attuned to punctuality. So I do believe that, you know, we're going to go back to uh, when we mentioned the doctor has feelings for Cass. I do think that that still is the case. And now because she's spending more time with Mr. Vulcan than him, he's mm-hmm. making her know that. Yep. Yeah. Very interesting. We keep playing this with Cass. By the way, speaking of Cass, quite the dramatic reveal with Janeway stepping away to reveal Cass on the view screen. They chose to do that. I love that it's a choice. And also, just technical note, I love the lighting on the bridge like this. I mean, I've always thought that Voyager just had one of the best bridge designs. And sometimes they take it to the next level with how it's lit and photographed. So one more reason that Marvin Rush is one of my heroes. I just think he's great as a DP on this and every Trek show he taught. So you have this thing introduced, this sporocystian toxin. And Tuvok came mm-hmm. up with this idea because just in case things go wrong with strange new life forms that we usually seek out as per our mandate in Starfleet, if things go wrong, let's make sure that we have a weapon that can kill it, just in case. Hold that yeah. thought, my friend. Let's come back to that. And yep. here's the yep. other thing. So you have this, and then you have Janeway look at her first officer at Chakotay for his guidance. Like, well, Tuvok makes a good point. What do you think, first officer? And Chakotay looks like away and down at the ground like, sorry, mom, I, 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 don't, I have no opinion whatsoever. Mm. That really bothered me. Because she's supposed to, yeah. he's supposed to have that look of conviction. He looked more interested in whatever she said than smiled at him or smiled at her for that weird long time than have any feedback on this poison yeah. that Tuvok's going to make to to countermeasure the you know the caretaker's mate if anything goes wrong. That is a weird right? point, right? <laughs> Oh my God. All right, let's talk about Tannis coming over for a visit. Uh, he, he says to Cass when they're in the uh, the aeroponics lab, this is a cold and barren place. Okay, but again, dude, let, let me repeat Cass's words to you. You live on a space station. Mm-hmm. He's so judgmental. Mm-hmm. 
Come on. Um, really nice moment of Cass expressing her conflicting emotions about Tannis and Tuvok chiming in to say, like, just be non-emotional, of course. <laughs> you know, then, then Janeway, I love that. I love that. And Janeway reminding uh, her that she's not Vulcan. I felt like all of that was a perfect kind of Star Trek shorthand. And, and played really nicely. It's as if they had like Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, but just in two people. In yeah, that conversation, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, nicely done. I got nothing to add to the conversation about the food on that banquet table. Uh, lots of leaves, you know. That, that's what I saw. So, um, and, and I didn't really do the math, but 300 years, that is a lot of a comp of generations. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they become sexually mature, what, sometime around two or a little after two, but they only live to nine. So, whew, yeah, a I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought that up. And I have to drop a pun in here for all of you people who know this reference. So we're talking about Tannis. So Tannis development proceeding mm-hmm. when we're talking about Tannis. <laughs> so you have these interesting facts that are brought up. A 14-year-old Ocampan breaking mm-hmm. the cycle of 10 mm-hmm. or 10 that we know, 10 years maturity that we know. Maximum. Maximum that we know. So I wish they got a little more into showing, like, the technology that extended this colonist's, you know, age level, their age average. Also, so you mentioned Elogium. You mentioned at Mm -hmm. two, they become sexually mature. So what happens when you have a 14-year-old or a 20-year-old that mates for life with an Ocampin that changes kind of like the course, the trajectory of their age. I mean, mm-hmm. does that do anything to them like physiologically, mentally, physically? Yeah. There's just so much now that has changed because the only thing that we knew in Elogium is that, you know, Ocampin's age for 10 years and that's it. Yeah. But now it's different. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I feel like part of it might be technology. Part of it is Suspiria keeping them like essentially doing to them what Tannis does to those flowers, you know, ma- making mm-hmm. them sort of hyper alive. But yeah, but it does raise this question, like, what does it do? I, I might have another thought on that in a mm-hmm. moment, too. I thought it was a fun little bit of CG uh, when Kess is warming up that cup of tea. Like, it's not really necessary. You right. could just cut to the cup, see it boil, see it crack. But, you know, we, we went to the effort to have the molecular uh, structure of it. So it's kind of this interesting, weird amalgamation of like the force and the matrix all happening at once, like in her mental abilities. Because yeah, you're right. It's it's nice to see. It's nice to see the technology at work. You know the special effects, but they went really deep, like into like the molecular level of yeah, the manipulation, yeah. which I, I know it pays off later, but. Yeah, it was yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, look, we have to point out forty seven when we can, but come on, forty seven hours really? Right. Like the the only thing we've gotten that's not a standard Earth Day twenty four hours is Bejor being twenty six hours, and now here we just have an odd number. And I'm sorry, I'm not here for it. Too egregious. Oh, but oh, oh I didn't recognize Bejor. I usually say Bejor. Oh, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> Um, and it's like, uh, don't make sure that, you know, you, that Suspiria like doesn't do your cable because she'll show up in like, you know, anywhere between eight to 47 hours. That's just nuts. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want that. Don't want that. Dude. I loved that blistering, bleeding Tuvok special effect makeup because sometimes when Star Trek goes horror, just go horror, just do it. And they did it there. They went for it. Yeah. I liked that a lot and it was really extreme. I liked how they... I don't know. They manipulated uh, Jennifer's voice when she screamed because it was almost mm. kind of like almost like this weird sonic layering that was going on. It gave her like an alien sound, which mm-hmm. was nice. Um, but I wish that they kind of went a little bit further with what they did to Tuvok. I mean, it was mm-hmm. there, but I wanted it to go just a little bit further, um, yeah. a little bit more blistery, a little bit more gory. But you had that interesting kind of like. Uh, Rick Baker, you know, American Werewolf with kind of mm. the the mm. pulsing, moving that that uh, uh, that like expansion the, of his face, you know, yeah, like the bladders were like you know pulsating yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. sure, mm. very cool, very cool. And, and I, I love the doctor's line: "Vulcans make the worst patients." <laughs> kind of, <laughs> kind of a great moment. Yeah, well, it's interesting that they bring up the whole Vulcan healing technique thing because we don't really know how many hours like pass between when his blood was literally boiling and his skin was like literally like bubbling. Yeah. I wish there was some, again, scarring or just effect. 
you know, to show that he's still healing, like he's still not quite settled. Yeah, give him something. It, slow him down or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, you, we need to see some recognition of that. It was a little magical that he gets off the, the exam bed. I, I really like the lighting and color change in the aeroponics bay when Kess is doing her bit. But, man, did they just go straight up orange for Gary Graham. At some point, you got back to him like, wow, dude is orange. Yeah. If if one takes that interpretation differently, saying all the different mm-hmm. color saturations in the hydroponics bay, one could assume that maybe this is what you're seeing when you're on some type of mm-hmm. vision quest, you know, yeah. Yeah. where I, things I, have been mind altered. Well, I like that idea because I was thinking the same thing. That doesn't have to be a literal thing, but it is their perception of it, right. which is kind of cool. Yeah. All right, Norm, it's our favorite line of the whole episode because Gary Graham delivers it with all such sincerity. Bring the fire. And I could just, in my head, I see that as like the tour name for some band. Like, you know, Def Leppard is back on the road with Bring the Fire in 1989. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, love it. So, you just add Suspiria to their discography after pyromania is right after pyromania yes yeah you have to yeah so i guess uh, are do we infer from this that all nacine kind of look like big purple space slugs because i i didn't really get that impression necessarily from the caretaker that's not what i walked away with uh and if that is the case why haven't we got an action figure of this Ooh, custom action figure custom action figure big purple Mm -hmm. sluggy type thing Mm mm-hmm I like the purple energy tentacles that were kind of like forming around Torres when she's talking to the captain about mm-hmm. this is what we can do, you know, to make sure that we do the thing. Yeah. All right. So here's where things they're going so well. It gets a little tropish. Like, of course, the big bad Suspiria. Mm-hmm. Of course, she has to be a diminutive young girl in a pink dress with a stuffed animal because why not force something into this situation? Right. I, it, children are creepy. Children are creepy. <laughs> it, 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 it's it's a horror. It's a horror thing. It's a real life thing. I mean, think about it. I think about how effective that can be in a horror when you have you know a movie like The Omen, or you go back to the Twilight Zone, and you've got little Billy Mummy just wishing people away. I mean, mm. children are creepy. Sorry, some so. of you in our audience, you got children. Don't turn your backs. So when you when you actually saw. The Suspiria, the young girl, turn into the giant purple tentacle creature. Did it take away some of that great mysticism of the caretaker? Like, did it take that away? Did it remove some of that? Uh, just kind of like that suspension of disbelief mm. that this is like this greater otherworldly being. Now they're just kind of like purple tentacle aliens. And that doesn't really, I don't know, that doesn't excite me. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of don't read that. And that's the thing that I, I didn't make that association of the purple space log with the alien because i kind of don't want to know what the caretaker what the nasine look like mm-hmm. yeah yeah i like the idea that they manipulate their form to be whatever is there to be interacted with by the alien that they're encountering you know oh and i do love boy the, this last line i love how much we get about being vulcan from tuvok because we haven't had that since Spock and uh, the Vulcan heart was forged out of barbarism and violence. I, I thought that was such a great line, lest anyone forget. Uh, but of course, man, Norm, I don't know if it's just you, but me, I, I have such a hard time believing that about kindly old Tuvok. I mean, surely, surely there's not a terrifying heart of barbarism and violence beating in him, you think? Maybe Tannis would have more luck with his recruiting if he did a presentation with PowerPoint slides on the benefits of joining forces with Suspiria. We will get back to cold fire in a moment. But first, a message to all of you about you. Yes, so the sponsor of this week's show is you, specifically all of you who have joined us at Patreon. Uh, You've done that at patreon.com slash mission log. You hear us week after week talk about how much we appreciate it and what you get out of it. And 
you know, this episode is dropping shortly after we've gone to Vegas. And I got to say, Patreon added a whole new level to that experience. Because if you think about it, Norman, you have the online experience of Patreon. People can listen to our shows early. They can watch the video. You have the, the physical Patreon stuff, the swag that people get in the mail. You have the, the sort of virtual meeting that is our Discord that is exclusive to Patreon. But now we had, like, Patreon in real life. All the people who joined us at patreon.com slash missionlog and came to the Vegas convention, you had your own exclusive party in a suite. And I have to say, I hope it's the first of many more to come because it was so cool to hang out in person, in real life, and see all those happy faces in the same room. And that's why we do what we do on Patreon and, of course, on our Discord, because it brings a community together. And what's really nice and, and was fantastic, like John said, about being able to meet everyone in person in Las Vegas for our Patreon slash Discord meetup, just to put a, a handshake and a smile with the faces that we see almost every week during our live shows and during some of our special features that we have throughout the course of, of the week as we interact with everyone there on our Discord, which is fantastic. Yeah, so you know what to do. Go to patreon.com slash mission log, just like these fine folks did. Let's give a shout out to some of our most recent members. Michelle, Starfleet Bew Ships, I hope I got that right, and Matthew, Matt, and Stuart. Welcome all. Can't wait to see what new names we get to read next time we talk to you about Patreon. Again, we'll see you there at patreon.com slash mission log. Norman, there was something you brought up in the last segment about the Ocampa lifespan. And I wondered, you know, something that I thought about was maybe that nine-year lifespan is what is correct for the Ocampa. Because maybe their powers can and do develop rapidly. Maybe they can and do get out of hand. Maybe that happened in their evolutionary path at some point. So maybe this is sort of a protection against their own mental abilities. If they kept going for, you know, 20 years and beyond, maybe those powers would uh, get weaponized. I mean, that's not to say that any species can't act horribly and weaponize the, the tools that they have, but maybe that's just kind of how it played out for them. It's an interesting thing that you bring that up, like this limited lifespan, because now we're looking at, say, replicant technology from Blade Runner, you know, where mm. the replicants only have X amount of energy so that they can only perform X amount of you know, tasks during the course of their lives so that they don't overrun normal society because they are in every way, shape and form a physical human being aside from the energy level that they are obviously lacking. So. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting, like, um, fixed point in time that the Ocompans have looking at their own, at the end of their own existence. So do they, like, in, in evolving faster, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to tap into their abilities. I mean, with the whole process with Tannis, his mm. development proceeding, you know, with Kess, it's about someone who has been taught the ability to do this and someone who knows, like, how intoxicating that ability is to be able to tap into that power, to be able to become something greater than you would ever would have possibly imagined. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that I'll, I'll get to it later, but I think that that's kind of like this interesting cautionary tale that's brought mm -hmm. into the story where here's what you can be, mm -hmm. but should you be? Right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to bring it back to another comment that you made in the last segment, because uh, absolutely, we're, we're on the same kind of wavelength here. This preemptive armament with a deadly weapon, this is rare to see on Star Trek. And, and I guess we could make the assumption that anywhere one of these starships flies well they are bringing deadly weapons with them like that that is just a given voyager shows up somewhere look at tanis's reaction your ship as seen as dangerous you, you go around taking resources you you blow up things you make enemies out of other people uh, the reception in the delta quadrant has not exactly been warm but here's a starship that has photon torpedoes has phasers can fight its way out of a situation but this moment felt different a being that they had encountered before with some sympathy, let's not forget. And now we're building a weapon specifically to take something like it on. On the one hand, it's a bit of a clunky storytelling convenience. Uh, like, think about 
queen to queens level three in whom gods destroy. Mm. You mm-hmm. never heard that term before. You never had a little gambit like that with a code word for the transfer. You never had that before. You just created for the story, and it stands out like a sore thumb because you did it. Right. On the other hand, this is Star Trek, and this comes across as a very calculated way to kill or at least endanger a potential enemy. I mean, even in the Corbomite maneuver, you know, that extreme choice that Kirk had to make, that was done at the you know, at the very end, you know, where mm-hmm. he only really had one choice, and that was to bluff, mm-hmm. right? This isn't that. This is a calculated a, a calculated strategy against a being, again, that they knew, mm-hmm. that they knew that there were others out there. And then Tuvok, I know that he's head of security, and I know yeah. that logically it's probably the right thing to do. But when you're looking at it from a Star Trek fan's point of view, there's a reason why, like, what Tannis said, and beautifully performed by Gary Graham when mm-hmm. he said that yours is a ship of death yeah. that was an incredibly I think incredibly well deserved slap in the face to the Voyager crew yeah. because they're like you know what you're not Federation in the Delta Quadrant you're not Starfleet in the Delta you are nothing in the Delta mm-hmm. Quadrant you are the ship that ever since you appeared a the wake of tragedy and death and destruction has followed you right yeah so it's interesting that this Ocompen, uh, this Ocompen leader and the sect that he that he leads, has that perception of them. I mean, think about it. Without the resources of a great marketing spin machine, and say like ambassadors and positive outreach that the Federation has in the Alpha <laughs> Quadrant, because yeah. it's its power base, right? Yeah. How do you change the public image's perception of you when these things happen? You do it through relationships you do it through allies you do it through public relations you do it through ambassadors but what happens when you don't have any of that right does it yeah. make the compens observations any less untrue well that's the thing it, it is definitely not true from their point of view they're lacking context and we're not here just to condemn starfleet or specifically voyager's crew but i, I thought about this from another uh, another perspective as well it's like okay every time we see a starship crew beam down to a planet with phasers we just expect it we just go like, oh of course they're going to a new planet they have no idea who they're going to encounter they've got phasers they have these handheld weapons with enormous destructive power in their hands right Mm -hmm. but at the same time we've never actually heard them acknowledge to each other hey we're beaming down to a planet let's make sure we can kill anything that approaches us and that's what it is that is literally what it is and here's tuvok you know based on based on the interaction with the caretaker if I were captain, I don't think that would seem like a reasonable course of action. It's reasonable only because of the story that unfolds in this specific episode. But if you use history as a guide here, uh, the caretaker was just sad, lonely, and frail. You know? I mean, when you look at it from kind of like the the ten thousand foot perspective, you know, we've mm-hmm. always believed that. And I, I'm glad that you brought up the example of you know when Starfleet beams to a planet or beams to somewhere new. You know, they're Defensive, of course, you know, but mm-hmm. they do have weapons drawn most of the time. And I think that's in actually more newer Star Trek than older Star Trek. But we believe because we're looking at it from the lens of the heroes, we're looking at mm-hmm. the, per- the perspective of we being Starfleet as the audience. We naturally believe that the decisions are made uh, in the right and moral way, in the right and moral context. But what if they aren't? Right. I think yeah. that sometimes, you know, we don't really look at it from that perspective. And I like how Tannis, again, uses that as as kind of a sticking point when meeting Voyager. He's like, I don't know who you are. I don't know your federation. I don't know your titles. I don't know of your merits or credits or, you know, validity behind your statements. All I know is, is that this race no longer exists because of you. I'm generalizing, you know, their, you mm-hmm. know what happened. But mm-hmm. this happened, this happened, this happened, and this happened. And you say that you're a ship of peace. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that? You know, of course the Federation can say we are in our space. It's our backyard, you know? Yeah. And we have allies that they may not agree with us, but they'll support us because they want to be allies. But when you don't have any allies working with you, it's all about what you do, not about what you say. And look, to Janeway's credit, I mean, she and her crew have attempted in many of these first contact situations to 
talk their way out of a fight. <laughs> that 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 is absolutely that's a given. We're not condemning our heroes here, but at the same time, you have to look at the repercussions of the actions. You know, that it's not out of the realm of possibility that word would get around like this. Um, I want to move on a little bit and just talk briefly about Tuvok as a teacher here, because I wondered, you know, think about him in Learning Curve and how unwilling he was to sort of bend his methods to meet his students where they are and really become the mentor that they needed. Look, I I say this partly in jest, but we do start out with him basically telling Cass to not be herself. (laughs) Like, you should be less emotional. Don't giggle. You should be more like a Vulcan. And then he Mm -hmm. does it again. I mean, not everyone is Vulcan. But then, as a Star Trek fan, I go, okay, you know what? This is part of the fun of having a Vulcan around, is their presumed superiority and the attitude that everything would be better if everyone else just acted a little more Vulcan. You know, I, I like I get that. It's, it's entertaining. Um, I do... I do think that Tuvok redeems himself quite a bit f- from a scene that almost starts... A little weird. It's when he gets up from the examination table and he cuts off Kess and says, you are probably feeling the emotion of remorse, possibly mm. guilt. I advise you to look on this incident as a learning experience. Of course, he says it in a very cold Vulcan way. And yes, you know, she did almost kill him, but it, it, it's his way, I guess, of the non-emotional, we're cool. It's the non-emotional. Right, forget about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which just, it played strange, but at the end of that scene, I felt it played better than it started. Because it comes across as a bit jarring, at least I thought it did. I think he didn't want her to dwell on it. And I think that that's mm-hmm. a very, that, that's very, you know, stereotypical, like, Vulcan mentality. It happened. If yeah. we dwell on it, it doesn't change the fact that it happened. And your th- we're going to need you to focus on the task at hand because right now you're the only person that can meet Tannis at his level. So we need you focused and not distracted and certainly not distracted by thinking of what could have happened to me, what you almost did to me. That's in the past. Even if it's in hours, that's still in the past and you're not going to affect that. You're only going to affect the present and future. So I like that. And I think that that Tuvok and and, and Tim plays it brilliantly. I like Mm -hmm. that there are three major uh, points of this of this episode where you see Tuvok incrementally grow. You know, at mm. the very beginning, mm-hmm. where he's of course trying to manipulate or or try to um, be the authority of this is how you discipline yourself if you actually think like a Vulcan and don't you know and entertain your your giggles. Mm-hmm. Then there's this. Like, look what happened when you actually un- you became unfocused and didn't keep your eye on the discipline of your mental abilities. And then at the end, like let's take a look at what we've learned from these two parts where you were unfocused, where your unfocused abilities hurt somebody. And now you see the, the repercussions of said actions, but you and I can move forward because we're actually communicating better in the end where his story about Vulcan barbarism, I think was a soft apology saying I'm not perfect either. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that and I like the idea that that scene with Cass turns into the the one in Sick Bay and later it, it's his way of showing care and concern for her mental state, her growth, everything but without the emotional context, <laughs> you know. It's the Vulcan way of showing care and concern. Like like hearing him talk about his kids and his wife, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it it's nice to get to that lair. And yeah, like you said, he plays it perfectly. All right, let's talk about what I think is phew, th- th- this is the the meat of this story and the the really interesting part of it. Here's Tannis saying to Cass to lure her over. Once you see beyond the physical, you see the universe as it truly is, and that oh man, that line. So much of what he did should send you know shivers up your spine but that line in particular i thought this was one of the most interesting aspects of this entire story and it makes tanis more of a like a scary cult leader than just a run-of-the-mill manipulative villain like the whole notion 
of this life, like your present life being less important than some promised other life. The very idea that our physical limits are somehow lesser than or unworthy when compared to the promise of some other thing in the universe. This is the kind of thing that has been used and is still used over and over again to break people down and to devaluing their own lives and the people and the conditions around them in order to put greater weight on this ill-defined other thing just just out there. If you'll only come with me, if you'll only abandon the people around you, if you'll only give up the things that you think are important now, then I or this particular belief system can show you something better. It just played on every creepy level to me, and I thought it was great. That Yeah, that line in and of itself and the way that Gary delivered it, that really kind of like made me sit up and take notice because I thought this episode was very good, and I'll get into it later, but mm-hmm. that particular line, it, it made me think of, again, classic science fiction, classic Star Trek, where you have these otherworldly beings ascend to the point where they're so beyond like they're so beyond looking at the normal understanding of human comprehension or moral comprehension that they just see life so dispassionately hmm. because they've they've evolved so far and this is the i think the the scarier thing about tanis is that the okompans on that platform on that you know on that space station They've only tasted a fragment of the power, and that may have been mm. artificially induced by uh, Suspiria herself, just to keep them, um, just to keep them coddled, just to keep them in line. But when you have somebody like Atana saying, "I have experienced like a level of this power, and this is where we can go," I mean, think about like, is this how the Ocompans eventually become the Q? Or say the Organians, you know, right, or the Metrons, right. like these super, or the or the prophets, you know, these yeah. super beings that started off, you know, very normal in terms of like a mortal race, but over the time and over le- evolution, and you said this, John, it's like because the Ocompans have sh- such short lifespans, can they ascend so quickly mm. based on mm-hmm. this power, you know, this power curve that they can just become more than they've ever dreamed in the short amount of time, in linear time that they're comparing against their mortal counterparts. But all that being said, were they created and are they given this power to provide the adulation to a greater godlike being? Much like Adonais wanted, you know, or Apollo wanted, and who mourns in Adonais? Oh, the yeah, stronger the adulation, yeah, yeah. the stronger the god's power becomes. And yeah. I'm only going to give you just enough power to sing my praises so that I myself can become more powerful than I could possibly imagine and reach a higher plane of existence. Ooh. Hey, you just made it even creepier. If you feel your mojo rising, better check and make sure Kiss isn't practicing her new powers somewhere nearby. Well, John, we are at the end of our episode, and and we're not we're not cold. The fire is still very hot. Oh yeah, you know, but we are we are talking about cold fire. We are talking about you know. What we do here at the very end of our Mission Log episode, we're going to take a look at does this episode still hold up? Does it pass the test of time? Or does it have any morals, meanings, and messages that we have mined from it during the course of our discussion? I think we did because, again, this episode, for as cold the fire is, very, very warm in our discussions. Mm, we're going to so bring it. We're going to bring that fire. Let's start with you, John. Bring the fire. All right. I'm going to say we probably both expected it, but... Gary Graham, MVP here in this episode. He he is surly and abrasive and so condescending. <laughs> but he has this kind of like curiosity and realism under all of that. So he, he doesn't play it totally like the mustache twirling uh, villain here. Um, it's too bad that this episode suffers a little bit from the same shortfall that we had in the 37s, that we hear about how great a compass society is on the station, but we don't actually see it. And it's a budgeting move, but we only meet Tannis and just one other guy for like a second. And that's not enough of a sales pitch, you know, <laughs> to hear him come in and say like, oh, you've got nothing here. It's cold and sterile. Like, uh, okay, well, show me. Don't tell me. I love exploring the depth of what Tannis is up to. And I love how a story like this just keeps pushing Kess forward 
Jennifer Lean, the other MVP here, as she has been. And she's just wonderful in episodes like this that take her seriously and not just as the foil for like Neelix's immaturity or something else. Like when she's center stage, she's wonderful. Kudos to Brandon Braga for coming up with some fun, creepy horror imagery in this script. I feel like they nailed it where it needed to be there. Now, I will admit a couple of biases that take me out of this story and hurt this one just a little bit for me. I usually roll my eyes and tune out of anything that culminates in, you know, the main characters standing in opposition, staring intently at one another and using mind powers to fight. I also think that telegraphing the building of a weapon that will defeat this particular life form, it takes away something from the ending. But I guess also so what? Structurally, things get a little messy in Act 5. You know, Tuvok goes to engineering with security, but where are they? And what is Suspiria doing to him and Balana? And why would, you know, why is Kess messing with Tanis? Why does that throw off Suspiria? Like, there's all these things that just kind of happen in Act 5, and how would a force field stop her telepathic powers anyway? I, it's, it's messy, but. As the old Cunard ad slogan goes, getting there is half the fun. You know, uh, what I do love is that we have drama that is precisely back to the world building we got with the pilot episode of Voyager. I've really missed that. And it proves that there are good stories to follow without just constantly creating one-off characters and experiences for our crew. I know also that this episode served to cement the decision to keep Voyager out there lost in the Delta Quadrant rather than abandon that whole premise by just having another caretaker who could whisk them back home and I'm glad that they committed to that I'm glad then that you know you know as far as this crew knows ooh that was our last best chance to go home so I appreciate the many things that this episode did. It was stylistic. It was cool. It was creepy. So to me, it holds up. How about you? Yeah, you know, I really like this episode, too. And I think for me, it's been one of the more successful, one of the closest in Star Trek and certainly in Voyager to balancing these two very strong stylistic themes that don't necessarily blend well together in the same episode. That's horror and thriller. Hmm. You know, those are two very specific horrors. Mm -hmm. Very, you know, it's very visual and thrillers, very um, mental, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the storytelling uh, elements of it. I think the one thing that was sorely missing in this episode, though, was why was Kess being so heavily pursued, so hard by Tannis? Oh, Why? What was yeah. the point? I wanted, uh, somewhere in the discovery, I wanted Kess to possess something about her, some kind of rare ability or something that uh, Suspiria needed more from Kess than any other Ocampa that she had under her control. Perhaps somewhere in the beginning of the episode, maybe Tuvok unlocked something in her mind. In their in their mental uh, training that made Suspiria aware of Kess in the Delta Quadrant. Interesting idea. Yeah, you know, or perhaps maybe Tannis was so enamored with how natural Kess was developing in their training together. Like this girl is a natural, much like, and I hate to use this trope, but I'll mention it because it's the best way to describe it. Much like the Emperor was impressed with Luke because of Luke's abilities and how he became a Jedi so quickly. Sure. You know, it's just the temptation of power that's out there where someone even more powerful is like, I know that power. I felt that power before. And that power at one point in time was me. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So here's someone new on the, on the, uh, on the chessboard. Mm -hmm. So I just think that because Gary Graham was so good at being so, Sly and his 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 uh you know his his whole approach to Thanos was just incredibly well done. I just needed to know why he was so dogged and so insistent about just Kess, because in the end she was more powerful than he was, yeah. right? And we never got to see that uh, resolved at all. My biggest disconnect in this episode is actually using the name Suspiria. Oh, huh. Okay. So the first time I heard that name mentioned, all I heard in the in the earworm of that was Sinestra, like Sinestria. Okay. Or Suspiciousa. Something in that whole 
realm of traits that you feel are just you make you feel untrustworthy about this character. Yeah. They don't really deserve, you know, the benefit of the doubt. You know, so I know it sounds weird, but that's just that's just kind of like what entered my mind. So I had bias, you know, when yeah. this character appeared as that little girl, you know, trope that I mentioned earlier. I don't it's just one of those okay, you're going to name her something that sounds suspicious. Now you're going to present her as something as suspicious. Obviously, there's something wrong here. And I didn't want that. I want my I wanted my um belief to be subverted. Yeah. I, I get that. So. Yeah, because I mean you, you start out and you're already like, okay, this is probably a bad guy. Just look, Tuvok is building a weapon. <laughs> and we're and we're we're naming this character as something that sounds weird and creepy. So right. yeah, 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 I hear you. Just a, a couple small adjustments and some of those are on me of course. But mm-hmm. the only other thing that and I asked you this and I'm gonna probably mm-hmm. leave my observations here with a question is did seeing the the physical tentacled version of Suspiria remove the entire mysticism about the caretaker's race? Mm. I mean, did they need to do that in order to prove that they are just a, a more evolved version of an alien life form that is this powerful? Yeah. Because it felt like, you know what, they just kind of reduced them to just very standard aliens, Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I got that. All right, well, I, I think this episode has a lot to chew on, but in terms of messages, you know, telling the audience something, there's a few things that stood out to me here. I I do like that line at the very end uh, that Tuvok shares with Kess. Without the darkness, how would we recognize the light? Do not fear your negative thoughts. They are part of you. Words of wisdom from Tuvok to Kess. But then I ask myself, is this really what the episode is about? I don't think that's necessarily about that. Yes, Kess does experience some negative thoughts, but she there is a whole process for her to go through before realizing, like, oh, no, no, this is wrong. Part of it being, oh, this guy just threw my boyfriend across the room. <laughs> so, so it isn't necessarily about adopting and absorbing and recognizing the negative thoughts, uh, but I, I think that message at the end is no less valid. But I do think that there is something here, maybe for Cass and others, uh, uh, not giving into temptation. Uh, we see that clearly Tannis has completely handed over his whole identity, his whole life, and everything he believes to Suspiria. And he presents this very intriguing temptation to Cass have more powers, learn more, become one with the universe, live in a place of pure thought. This is all very tempting. And let me tie this to something else here that's not just the intellectual pursuit, but think about uh, Hyde and Q in Next Generation when Riker discovers that there is a price to having great powers. You know, Tannis promised powers, uh, not the least of which is just a longer life and oneness with the universe and the embrace of Suspiria. It was all that creepy cult leader stuff with these very uh, intriguing, ethereal, high-minded things to hand to her. But but there was something that came along with that uh, that very clearly to Kess came with a price, just like having the powers of the Q for Riker came with a price, a price that he didn't want to pay. And for Cass, it was recognizing at every step of the way that this could be abused. And um, her clearly accidentally misusing that power. But I, I thought the guiding gentle hand of Tuvok to say, okay, that happened. You can't beat yourself up about it. Now let's get you back on the path that now that this is gone. Um, So I think there are some lovely thoughts here wrapped up in this creepy horror-ish episode. (laughs) How about you, Norman? I mean, we are kind of dancing, you know, um, around that that great trope-ish, you know, super heroic moral of great power comes great responsibility or with great power comes great responsibility. But I think that more so than the moral, I think that the overall the observation of what happened is is really uh, a cautionary tale, as I said before. I mean, there's a really interesting study here in the struggle for power. You know, in this case, you have the power of Suspiria over the Acampa, over, and they're under her control. And then you have the power of Tannis, who's under her control, using his abilities to kind of control Kess and put her under his control. Mm-hmm. So 
this there's this um, power struggle of using these telepathic abilities on the surface, but it does present one more common and say more viable moral meaning or message here in the storytelling is that power is the aphrodisiac that demands more power, right? Mm. Power is a drug and the drug of choice that, that you cannot satiate the unsatiable thirst for it. Mm -hmm. So look at it, how it's used with say people and especially say the naive youth that Kess presents. How can power be used to completely manipulate the young and the innocent and the trusting and the unsuspecting. This is where Kess has like has been built up over the course of many, many episodes. Neelix saying, you're too young. You don't understand. And then the doctor's saying, you know, you're too innocent and you don't understand. Mm-hmm. And now someone who actually does know what she's about and does know that she might be able to understand gives her and unlocks this ability in her. But the thing is, is that he uses it to weaponize her or tries to until things just until let me be fair the story doesn't support that anymore, <laughs> right. which is which is unfortunate <laughs> yeah yeah but what i also loved about this and as another observation of a moral meaning or message is how tuvok comes back in and inserts himself as kind of like this rock this emotional calm in her storm yeah right again you have this very volatile young naive person who's been given this drug of power and doesn't know how to really wield or manipulate it and it's so tempting to use abusively but now you have Tuvok and uses he uses the lessons that he's kind of implanted in her over time to and you saw that again in the beginning the middle and, and at the end as these foreshadowing events that will bring him to the the very end conclusion of there are no shortcuts to becoming the best version of yourself it takes time it takes commitment it takes determination and it takes sacrifice I love that. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Maneuvers. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. You mean to tell me Kes can basically cook with her mind, and everyone's going to keep putting up with Neelix's food? transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.